All of you out there hurtling through space with us on this cosmic rock that we call Earth, welcome to Everything is Interesting. I'm Kira Lindenberg. And I'm Kira Kleinberg. And we're back in studio with our friend and co-pilot on this intergalactic journey, Jefferson Smith. Hi. Hey. And we have our fearless producer, Amalia, here to help us steer us on our journey. Hello, everyone. Hey. So this is part one in a duet about black holes. Those mysterious, extraordinary objects that drive physicists wild and stretch the boundaries of our imagination. Today, we're going to find out how it's even possible for a black hole to exist and how we know that they are out there. And in part two next week, we'll explore what's inside one. So way back in 1783, John Michel from Cambridge suggested that if a star was sufficiently massive and compact, it would end up with a gravitational field so strong that even light could not escape from it. And he called these hypothetical objects dark stars. Since then, we've made leaps and bounds in our understanding of the universe and in our ability to measure it. If he were alive today, Michel would be pleased to discover that his prediction was spot on. Black holes do indeed exist and they don't seem to obey the laws of reality. All right, so Jefferson, Amalia, what I'd like to know is, what do you imagine a black hole to be like? Amalia? Well, okay, so I'm picturing one of those very large funnels, and you throw the coin down into the funnel, and it spins and spins and spins and spins and spins (laughs) and still disappears. That's what I imagine it to be, but, like, way cooler. Okay, all right. I I am looking at my picture of a black hole. Uh It was from the 1979 movie, The Black Hole. Perfect. Which was a... (laughs) Super accurate. Which was a follow-on to the movie Star Wars. My follow-on, I do not mean a sequel. It was decidedly not a sequel. It was something that was hoping to tap into this fever of Star Wars just before Empire Strikes Back. Fan fiction. It was was a worse movie. In direction, acting, script, story, special effects, etc. I nonetheless loved it. And for the image of a black hole in the movie, the black hole, it was pink. It was it was, it was, it was pink it was and purple. Pink. It was pink and purple, like pink, uh, purple on the outside, pink on the inside. Maybe a little funnily, and then like a little black hole in the middle. That's how you knew it was a black hole because if it was just a black hole, it would just look like there were stars missing. Sure. Oh. I think we should just end the show. I think yeah, we should just leave it. it. And we've that, seen. There you we've go, everybody it, out there. There is a black hole. Because <laughs> that's solved. It's pretty cool. Uh, well, well, black holes may not be pink and purple, but they are pretty awesome. And they are, I don't know, a good way, I guess, of describing it is they're sort of the result of the cataclysmic death of a giant star that ends up bending the fabric of space-time. You know, like you do. I sometimes like to think of black holes as the ghosts of dead star because they're what's left over. And plus, you can't see them or touch them or ask them what they want. Well, except that, I mean, black holes aren't translucent like ghosts are because I know a lot about ghosts. Yeah, right. So (laughs) I'm just saying. But but it's true that you can't see black holes because they are infinitely smaller than they used to be. Ah, right. So regular stars are big. Our sun is pretty much just a small star. It's a nice size. I write the show and I think I know how it's going to go, and then every time. Insecure about the sun, are we, Jefferson? Yeah. Anyway, you could put like a million Earths inside our suns, but it's not that It is a good size, yeah. But there are stars out there that are over 2,000 times bigger than our sun, and they have a tremendous amount of mass. 
and, and mass and matter. And matter is this is how much stuff is in an object. When you say it's two thousand times bigger, you don't just mean like its circumference. You mean how much how much yeah, stuff how much is inside. Stuff it? is in it. Well, yes, exactly. Actually, technically, the two thousand does come from the measure of the radius, but but yes, they would also have an incredible amount of, of mass. So and, and more mass means more gravity. Um, if gravity were, say, the only thing that was taken into account, then a, a big, massive star would actually be crushed by its own weight. And how do you know? Ooh, good question. We're going <laughs> to tell you. We don't. Bye. So anyway. Because they're really <laughs> far away. You know. Yes. You know what? One day we'll do a hey, whole. We say we all waited the origin, but who was around to write about we, it? We will actually. Plutarch? You got Plutarch? What are you saying about my eyeballs? You don't think my eyeballs work very well? No, listen. At the end of the show, we will actually get to how we know black holes exist and how we know how things work in space. Yes. But for now, we'll talk about how inside every star is a battle between the nuclear fusion reactions that push all the mass outward from the star's core. That's why it's emitting light, because of these uh, fusion reactions. So there's a battle between that and the star's own immense gravity, which is crushing itself inward. And as long as these two things are in balance, the star retains a stable shape and size, and it carries on existing. But unfortunately for the star, the fuel that's powering it is not infinite. And after a time, the fuel will run out, the fusion will end, and the outward explosions of energy will grind to a halt. And then, gravity gets the upper hand, and the star begins to collapse. What keeps coming to mind is the is the TV ad, now long past of the clapper, where oh, the sure. person says, I've fallen and I can't get up, uh-huh. but then they need like a medic alert bracelet, yeah. you know, or, the, or they can have another device where they just clap and it turns things on. Sure. Did they fall because their nuclear fusion stopped? Oh, they collapse. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think yeah. it probably has something to do with nothing about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm imagining a star wearing a special life alert. <laughs> <plan. laughs> That's like, a really oh, good no, image. Yes. I'm turning into a black hole. Uh, all right. So if, if a star's mass starts out kind of small, then the gravity-driven collapse will end up restabilizing itself. And that's thanks to the repulsive forces that exist between all atoms everywhere. And this makes them tend to resist being squeezed together. So the dead, now stable, smaller star will then cool and meet a peaceful end as what we know as a white dwarf. So lovely. But because gravity increases as mass increases, when a giant star dies, it takes a more cataclysmic turn. I can't say that word. Can you say that word for me? Cataclysmic. Every time, every time we've read through this. Even though some of the stars matter, first explodes outwards in what we call a supernova. What's left behind is still so massive that it continues to collapse as its immense gravity overcomes all the repulsive forces inside it. Oh, so cool. That star shrinks, and but retains its mass and immense gravitational force. It folds in on itself over and over, eventually becoming what we know as a black hole. Couple things. Repulsive forces sounds like avoiding commenting on the current occupants of the White House. White dwarf <laughs> sounds racist. And also, I didn't realize gravity was so strong of a force that it could take down a massive star. That's wacky. I really appreciate that we get to talk about both science and current events on this show. It's true. So, yeah, it's it's the it's a unified theory of everything. Anyway, maybe it'll make more sense when we explain gravity a little better. Because while you are thinking of gravity as a force that attracts things towards other things, that's actually not what it is at all. I thought that was the whole deal with Newton and the apple, is that there was, you know, a force. And that's also the Star Wars part, which gets me to the black hole in the first place. Different forces. The force in the Star Wars, different force than (laughs) Newton's force. But Okay, (laughs) let's open the can of worms of why Newton's idea of gravity of a force doesn't work uh, let's let's do it with a little help from newton jefferson would you like would you like to help us would you like to be newton actually could you just channel newton yeah cha- Ooh. Do you, do you use really, the force do you really and channel want me to use a voice 
Is this really you want me to use a no. voice? To yes, be please. Sure. How do you think Newton sounded? You do you, Jefferson. It, he, okay. Well, if I just do me, I'll just say good day, fellas. I can't. I don't know if I can do it. I need to. I need. To. I just want you to use the voice of somebody who just invented like the most deep? important. I can do British accents, no, but they make British, me cringe. Just important. You're he just was important. British. Yeah, well, you can do that if you want. I'm just saying yeah, you got to make sound. How about just a big sound. voice? How about just a big voice? Great. All right. Good guys. day, fellow citizens. I'm Newton Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton. Very back, good. So back in the 1700s, Isaac Newton recognized that we weren't just stuck to the earth by accident. Yes, I have discovered gravity. Gravity is an attractive force that exerted equally and transferred instantaneously between all particles of matter. Newton's theory was pretty solid. With it, he was able to precisely predict the motion of all the planets in the solar system. I can even predict the existence of an outermost planet that will be discovered one day after I die, I assume. And then debunked, but uh, sorry, Pluto. Sorry. <laughs> but, but Newton's theory wasn't perfect. Even Newton himself was not convinced that he had the best, most complete explanation of gravity. My theoretical laws about how the universe works, which I have humbly named Newtonian physics because I am Newton, are excellent for predicting how matter will behave. But alas, to explain the behavior of light. The calculations of Newtonian physics were genius. You're genius, Newton. But it just, it couldn't reconcile how matter behaves differently than light and electricity, things like that. And as it turns out, Newton would be incorrect in his description of gravity. Even so, for 200 years, it was still the best theory we had, and much of it still holds true today. Now, enter the great mathematician Albert Einstein. Malia, do you like to be Einstein? (laughs) Yo, sup, guy. I'm Einstein, and I just came up with a theory that explains the behavior of both matter and light. I am so impressed at your German accent. Oh, right thank now. you. This is really <laughs> Oh, good for you. You also have <laughs> access to a telephone. I think Newton's jealous. A little bit. A little bit. Don't worry, Newton was dead. Yeah, so the story goes that I'm, I'm still busy dipping my pen in ink That's because not- people haven't invented a ballpoint. How do you like your quill, Newton? Oh, man. Okay, so I'm glad you're doing the German accent and not me. Okay, so the story goes that Einstein was standing in front of a mirror the first time he pondered this idea. Ah, yes, here I am in my bedroom looking at my own reflection. He realized that the photons of light that carry the image of his reflection were moving at the speed of light from the mirror to his eyes, and he wondered... If my bedroom was also moving at the speed of light in the same direction as my reflection, yeah, would the light bouncing off the mirror appear to stand still? Would I never actually see my own reflection? He figured that's probably not what would happen. It's probably not what would happen. It's not? No, of course not. Here, Kira and Kira, I know you guys don't understand science very well, so I'll explain it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Kira and <laughs> It's kind of morphine. This is great. It's also, great. Just, okay. I think that Stay Einstein... Edit this part out. I think Einstein, Einstein was Austrian, but that's close uh, enough. Sorry. It's perfect, it's perfect. If this flying bedroom of mine had no windows and I couldn't look out of the room, everything in it would still appear normal to me, including my reflection. In fact, without a point of reference, outside the room. I wouldn't even know I was moving. Oh, good point, Einstein. So we would see you and your room flying across the universe, but you wouldn't notice anything had changed from inside. What that means is this. To see my reflection as normal, the light inside the room would have to be still moving at precisely the speed of light, 
even though the room itself was also moving at the speed of light. This paradigm-shifting conclusion of this thought experiment was every observer always sees all light moving at a constant speed, regardless of where they are or how fast they themselves are moving. So the speed of light is not just constant. It's constant for all observers all the time. What's more, nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. And this is Einstein's special theory of relativity. Can we just talk about how awesome that was? You guys are... Yes. Uh, well done. Thank you, Han. I would like to apologize to everyone in Austria. <laughs> <laughs> I, and I Sorry. think he's Austrian. I might have also been wrong. I think you might be right. But yeah, it's okay. Uh, did, how did that make sense? Was that clear? It's a hard thing to explain. As a bell. And let me say, though, with light as a constant, mm-hmm. I can turn my light off. And yeah. then it is off. Yes. Constant, my left foot. Your foot he is got constant. it. That's it. That, that's the point we were trying to convey. You could turn light on and off. No, no, no. The point is that if there is light, it's always moving at the same speed. Mm. Yeah. So when your light is on, it is always going to move at the same speed, no matter who you are, it where you slow are. Down. Right. Yeah. It doesn't have a decelerator. Yeah. Ever. Like, for instance, if you were, like, Stan, if you were driving in a car and you were moving at X, like, uh, two, the speed of two, the speed of two. The you speed would of imagine two, everybody. that if you turned on a light a lot inside. Of people would be mad. Yeah. <laughs> but then if you turned a light on in your car, you think, oh, well, the light must be going the speed of light plus two. Because I'm going two and I'm holding the light. Not the case. The light is always going. You you in the car going the speed of two will see the light in front of you moving the speed of light and somebody standing on the side of the road watching you turn that light on. Now bear with me for a moment. So that if I have like my dog in the car with me. Yes. Let's say I'm going 20 instead of two. (laughs) You don't like going two. Too slow. So it could be two, but let's say (laughs) my dog is in the car. My dog in the car is also going 20. Yes. Okay. The air in the car is going 20. Yes. But you're saying the light in the car is not going anything relative to the 20. Yes. It's yes. only going its exact speed, which is the speed of light, yes. which is a constant. Always. Boom. Great. And everyone will see it that way, even the person on the side of the road. So special relativity, this is this is revolutionary. Um, and now this idea that, you know, there's a constant unrivaled speed of light, it totally changed physics at Einstein's time because it squashed Newton's idea that gravity was a force. Gravity appears to act instantaneously, but Einstein now knew that nothing, including physical forces, could possibly travel travel than let me try that again, could possibly travel faster than the speed of light. So he concluded that gravity could not be a force. First of all, it seems like a leap that I didn't quite catch up with. <laughs> Second of all, if it's not a force, what is it? Okay, the leap is gravity happens instantaneously and instantaneously is faster than light, but nothing no force could travel faster than light, so therefore, gravity cannot be a force. Why couldn't I be a force that just didn't behave in the same property as you described? Because no forces, they just, it doesn't work. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> like, like, that's the thing. If you, calculation if you shows no force cancel, can possibly be If you want to cancel all the shows after this one, I will explain right, it we to can you. Go into <laughs> <the next laughs> time, we will all right. just all right. I totally agree. You make such sense. Thank you for clarifying. Okay, but we will help. We will do our best explaining it. And we're about to take you into a realm that might go against everything that you intuitively understand about reality. So are you ready for that? Yes. Always. Einstein realized that if the speed of light as it moves through time and space is constant and not flexible, then what must be flexible is time and space. This laid the grounds for his general theory of relativity, in which he proposed a whole new concept of how gravity works. Yes. And it mathematically explains every measurement we've taken of the universe up to this point, which is 1915, because I'm, I am in 1915. <laughs> cool time travel. Einstein realized that this is a dimension 
that sorry, time is a dimension, just like space. And furthermore, time and space are inseparable from each other. And they form this like four dimensional grid that behaves a bit like a sheet of fabric that we're all traveling across. And get this, guys, time as <laughs> since time and space are interwoven, the speed you travel through the dimension of space will affect the speed you travel through the dimension of time is heavy stuff, no? And Einstein called this new version of reality, this four-dimensional fabric, space-time. And if you're just tuning in, this is Everything is Interesting. I'm Kira Klingenberg. I'm Kira Lindenberg. And we are finding out how Einstein's theory of space-time pointed us towards the existence of black holes. So Einstein calculated that objects and energy within space-time actually make changes to its shape. And these changes determine the way objects and energy will then move around one another. So when thinking about the moon orbiting the Earth, per se, gravity was no longer a force that pulled the moon towards the Earth. Instead, the moon was actually just falling into a divot in space-time that was made by the Earth. And everything in space-time was moving according to all the curves made by everything else. Makes sense, right? Got yeah, it? you guys got that, right? No problem? Good You're kids. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we yeah, yeah, it does. It's awesome. It's awesome. Good. Okay. So we realize that this is like a really vague and confusing concept, but let's go full Kira and Kira style and try to frame this in a ridiculous but relatable way. Jefferson, do you enjoy desserts? Sweets, perhaps? Too much. I'm trying to be on the Atkins, but instead I add bread and sugar. I call it the Fackins. Okay, Ooh. this is going to make a lot of sense to you, though, if you love sweets. So, uh, maybe. Um, I want you to imagine space-time as an infinitely vast sheet of fluffy frosting smoothed out in all directions. Can you do that? Num-nums. Yeah. Now imagine placing a massive object, let's say a planet-sized candy jawbreaker, into our space-time frosting. What's going to happen? It depends on viscosity of the frosting. Oh boy. <laughs> but, let's, but let's just Whoa. imagine it's a flimsy. It's yeah. a flimsy yeah. sheet of frosting. It's a fluffy, it's soft. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then then if it's if it's just the really fluffy kind of frosting, I mm-hmm. guess it'll just make a little divot in it. Right. Rather than bending the whole thing. But if it were if it were a sheet that was, I don't know, had a little bit different, it might actually kinda, you know, create like a thing if you like like imagine taking a sheet of right. a, a sheet like a, from your bed and putting a tennis ball so on. So this right? is it actually put a dent. This is it why would, we it went bend it. This is why we went with frosting and not a bed sheet, is because it, the jawbreaker would actually do that very thing that you first said. It would make a divot and, and sort of a, a deep, shallow divot mm-hmm. as opposed to, or deep, narrow, that was contradictory, deep, narrow divot as opposed to like a big spread out thing like if you had a bed sheet. Mm, all right. Yeah, the space-time frosting would essentially curve around the shape of this giant jawbreaker, right? Yep, in a divot form. So now let's talk about movement within space-time, and by that I mean across frosting. What will happen if you roll a smaller object, like a moon-sized gumball, across the sheet of frosting right past the jawbreaker? Uh, at some point, it might stop. But if you roll it fast enough, it'll create it'll create a little track. Right. Yes. We're, we're discounting viscosity and friction. No, th- no. In, in a frictionless frosting world, in a frictionless frosting world, it would create, I believe, like a little track. Okay. All right. Like, like a little row. Yeah. And then, what if it got close to the jawbreaker? What happened then? Might bump, uh, it, it, it might bump into it? Well, yeah. I, I see what you're going with, but it would. what we're going for is it would kind of start to fall into that divot that the, the jawbreaker made. Like it was yes, down. that's what it would so, do. Right, into right, fall divot. right into the divot. So there's, there's sort of a couple things that could happen. If the gumball was rolling really quickly, quickly enough that it would roll into the divot and then back out again. So if that happens, its trajectory is going to sort of 
chain just going to slingshot around the jawbreaker, and so it'll be going you know left instead of forward. And if it's not moving fast enough, the gumball will sort of just like get caught in the divot and spin around and around and around like the coin in the funnel that Amalia started this episode with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know until it meets its demise and sort of a giant sugary crash. Is the frosting pink like if the you black want it to be. hole? You know, if you want hole pink mold. and purple. Yes, okay. if you want it to be. And in the, event, in the event that the velocity of this gumball is just right, it will go flinging around the edge of the divot in space-time forever, locked in orbit with a jawbreaker, just as our own moon is with the Earth. Did that help? Yes. Is it, is it, Very is it helpful. Sweet so, example? So, let me clarify. We know gravity is actually objects moving along the curves of divots made in space-time by other objects. Basically. Like, well, things aren't acted upon by gravity as a force so much as they respond to the gravitational bends that exist in space-time. So, like, if you fell down a rabbit hole, that hole isn't acting on you so much as you are responding to the sudden lack of ground. And let's say if there was, like, some sort of gust of wind coming from that rabbit hole, it might hold you up and keep you from falling into it for a time. But when the wind stops, the fall would be inevitable, right? Yeah, so to bring that idea back to the dying stars and black holes, which is actually what this episode is about, I We've promise, been there. The, <laughs> the outward forces of the active star, the, the nuclear fission that's happening, act like the wind in that rabbit hole to keep you from falling into its own space-time divot. That was a lot of metaphors I just mixed. <laughs> So when when a star is dying, right, all its mass is collapsing and, and nothing can stop it from falling down into the deep and now narrow bend in space-time that its own body had already made. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? And the deeper this bend goes, the more the star's mass is attracted to the bottom of this bend divot hole thing, which makes it even deeper and then more narrow and so on until this star is infinitely compressed in on itself and the bend becomes infinitely deep. It's so deep that the star stuff will never escape. Neither will anything else, for that matter. Haha, <laughs> good pun. Uh, not even light. Light cannot escape. Deep, so deep, putting the light to sleep. And I guess that's when the quarter <laughs> falls through the funnel. Yeah. yeah. Or when the gumball never falls through the frosting. Again. Or the tennis ball falls through the sheet, depending on what metaphor you're using. So yeah, black holes are weird. And this is so wacky that Einstein himself didn't even believe that they were real. And since black holes don't emit any light, we certainly weren't finding any through our telescopes. Okay, so you can't see black holes, but I guess we think they're out there because of math. How do we, how are we so sure, just based on calculations and predictions, if we can't see them, how do you know? Well, the predictions and the calculations have a lot to do with it, because physicists realize that all of them, all of Einstein's uh, calculations about the distortion of space-time would almost certainly point to the existence of a black hole. Because those mathematical predictions and theoretical models help us find evidence of black holes. So we use them to help us predict how space-time would warp in the presence of a black hole, and then we search up evidence of the warping. So it's like indirect evidence. And one way to find indirect evidence is to hunt down for some very particular types of X-rays in the universe. X-ray. <laughs> I knew it. Um, well done. So good. In a binary system, let's say, uh, a binary system of stars is where two closely situated stars orbit around each other. If one of those stars collapses into a black hole, then those two stars still continue to orbit. One is a black hole, one is a living star. But the gravity of the black hole will then begin to strip matter from its living companion. As the matter stripped away from the living star swirls around the black hole, it heats up and it begins to to emit X-ray radiation. X-ray which is fairly easy to detect. We can measure, I can't get through this dang thing without laughing. We can measure this radiation and determine the mass and size of the invisible object that it's swirling around. 
So the x-rays <laughs> sort of indirectly reveal the shape and nature of the invisible black hole. Yep. You got it. Okay, that's cool. But if that other star explodes and also turns into a black hole, then that doesn't seem like that'll work. There'll going to be no matter, no x-rays to measure. Nope. Which is why binary systems of black holes, where both stars have become black holes, are such a mystery. The only way to find evidence of things like that are by measuring actual gravitational waves. Does this prove that dinosaurs aren't real and the Earth is flat? Yes. In other news, what are those? Can I surf those waves? (laughs) And what do I look like if I surf them? You would look so cool. So cool. Essentially, they're ripples that travel out through the fabric of space-time, like when you throw a pebble into a pond, except for that space-time ripples move at the speed of light. Einstein theorized that a large explosive event, such as the birth of a black hole, would give off enough energy in order to create enough energy that it would create these gravitational waves in space-time. So, if you could see space-time, it would be purple. It would be purple, maybe some pink, with maybe a black hole in the middle. And a stationary planet would make a depression in it, but an explosion would cause a bunch of rippling space-time, gravity waves, those things maybe being a different color. Yeah, you got it. And then you would surf them. Mm-hmm. So if we could detect gravitational waves sent out at the time of a black hole's birth, we would be able to collect direct evidence of the black hole's existence. And here's the cool thing. In 2015, not very long ago, for the very first time ever in history, we actually picked up gravitational waves from not a single black hole, but from one of those mysterious binary black hole systems. I think we I think we recovered this. I, I recovered this. I think we covered this on air. I believe we heard about this. Absolutely. It was a huge deal. It was um, there was this huge laser. It was the, the laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory that was run by Caltech and MIT. It's LIGO for short. It's LIGO. And I played um, basketball in the Caltech gym. The, the, Wow. The, um, the the basic concept here is that, so you've got two lasers. There's a laser that gets split by a prism. It goes, it bounces off two mirrors at the same time, and then it comes back. And if those two lasers come back to the origin point at the exact same time, they will cancel each other out, which is normal. Nothing happens. Nobody cares. If those lasers come back at slightly different times, because this is like the most sensitive detection unit ever made in the history of the world, we know that the only thing that could possibly disrupt those lasers or or the arms that they're attached to is gravitational waves. And that is what actually happened in 2015. The waves kind of flew through space time, you know, the nature of everything. And it made one arm slightly longer while one arm was slightly shorter. And just to clarify, the LIGO detector, the way it looks, is it sort of like this huge long arm? Like each of the, I think it has two arms. Two arms. arms. There's two two arms arms. and an L. And when we say long, we mean they're 2.5 miles long. And that's what the laser is being shot down is this arm. And so the gravitational wave is actually creating a slight bend in space time, which changes the length of that arm, which then changes the length of the laser or the arrival time of the laser beam. Yeah, it's it, it, like this whole thing is like a feat of physics that I can't even begin to yeah, wrap the, my the, head around. The preciseness at which they had to engineer this detector, um, because also if you think about it, in order to detect something that's like a gravitational wave, you have to be able to account for all other forms of vibrational right, right, interference. Right. And so they were able to make such a stable system that they, they knew the only thing that they could possibly pick up were gravitational waves mm-hmm. coming from the distant past in space. Right, <laughs> yeah, so it's pretty, I don't even know how they make it so stable. Styrofoam, I assume. So anyway, Anyway, since the 2015 LIGO had picked up more gravitational waves, 
uh, I'm sorry, since then it has picked up more gravitational waves from other distant black holes. And that really opens up like a whole new era in astronomy. Yeah, the LIGO detector is, according to David Reitz, executive director of the LIGO Laboratory, the most precise measuring device ever built. Mm-hmm. And the better that we can use these instruments, these precise pieces of engineering to study black holes, the better we are going to understand the nature of the universe. So, for example, thanks to the recent insights in quantum physics, we already know that Einstein's general relativity is not the most perfect explanation for how reality works. So we've got to keep searching. Sorry, Einstein. And black holes are likely going to be the source of the next leap in our knowledge of fundamental physics, getting into quantum and stuff. But we are out of time for today. So we're going to continue this conversation on the next episode of Everything is Interesting. So make sure to tune in. That'll be Thursday at 1.30 p.m. And we'll continue our exploration of black holes with our friend Emily Gilliland. And we'll explore what happens to to things that are traveling around a black hole, what would you find if you went into a black hole, and why black holes are going to lead us to the great unified theory of everything. And if you can't catch that episode live, don't worry. You can always download it as a podcast from iTunes, Android, or any other podcast host, or listen to it at everythingisinteresting.com. So we'll examine how black holes affect things around them, speculate as to what would happen if you fell into a black hole, and find out what black holes might lead us to the great theory. So thanks for being here with us today, Jefferson, especially, and Amalia. You guys were amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Can you just do the German accent one more time? Thank you very much. And Newton? Nah. <laughs> leave him be. Leave him. Ruined leave Newton be. Anyway. I'm, for this episode, I'm Kira Klingenberg. And I'm Kira Lindenberg. Thanks for listening to Everything is Interesting right here on X-Ray FM, where radio is yours.
Thank you.